Well, good morning to everyone. My name's Rich. If you don't know me, it is my privilege to uh, serve as one of the pastors here. Wasn't that last song uh, awesome, singing a cappella together? You know, if, if you're like me and have the uh, vocal talent that I do, you actually have to sing a little quieter during a song like that, because uh, I need the instruments to kind of drown me out a little bit, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to all of you just uh, just praise our God and sing a gospel that uh, saves us. So uh, it, uh, we do uh, have a number of things to accomplish today. If you came in, uh, you should have gotten a bulletin at the front, but if you didn't, I have a couple guys here who are going to walk down the aisles, so uh, slip your hand up, and they will put one of those into your hand. On there, I'll let you take note of a few different things that we have coming up. Next week, just to uh, everybody, a reminder that uh, it is our family integrated service. Uh, every fifth Sunday, we uh, just uh, shut down the children's ministry just for a week and have everybody join in here together. And so it's a great time. It's a little chaotic, but uh, we embrace it. And it's just a joy for all of us as one big family to uh, gather together with all of uh, the little families uh, all in here together. So just a reminder of that next week, especially you families, just uh, come prepared for that. Also, our summer expense fund is going to be coming to an end next week. As you, many of you know, we've been trying to raise a little bit of extra funds so that we can take care of some projects around here, some new flooring out front, some bathroom updates and remodels. We've been trying to raise around $20,000, and we have more than half of that that has come in. And so we're going to uh, make a push for another week, and uh, June 30th, we're going to shut that down. So I just ask that you would prayerfully consider how you might contribute to that above and beyond what you normally give so that we can, as, as, a, as a family, take care of this facility that we have been gifted so that we can uh, just create a, a welcoming environment for us as we gather and for anybody who comes in here. So uh, another week that uh, that will be open. So uh, you can give online uh, or you can drop a, a check in the uh, back boxes. Just to make a note on that for us. Also next Sunday, we have a uh, uh, a couple different things going on. We have uh, a meal for the jackals that uh, is, is happening. Max and Elise Jackal, who are kind of a foundational family here at the Crossing, have really been here as long as anyone. Um, they were, I think, the, the first marriage uh, within the Crossing, and uh, Max has been a deacon and just been a crucial part of the operations here for, for many years. And so uh, it's, uh, it's with uh, sadness that we see them move down to Denver, but at the same time, we're excited for them and the, the different opportunity to avoid a, a long commute and for them to kind of uh, start kind of a new season there. So next week, we're just going to have kind of a family potluck after we're going to, the church will provide uh, the meat and, and whatnot. We just ask everybody else to kind of bring a side if you want to stay for that. And then uh, we will do that. What? Oh, that's actually not next week. Sorry. Getting my dates mixed up. The Jackal's meal is on July 7th. It's after that. So thank you. My wife keeping me on track. She always does. So... So that's July 7th. So uh, just keep that in mind coming up uh, as we anticipate that. Next Sunday, actually, is our, is our meal and mingle. And what this is is just a desire. A number of different folks within the church have, have said, hey, how can we better connect folks from different stages of life? As we have a tendency to kind of uh, gravitate towards those maybe like us in, in similar seasons and whatnot, we, uh, we, we recognize that there's a value that comes from, from those who, who are single that can build relationships with families for, for those maybe who are retired or, uh, and all to connect with, with a younger generation. And so we want to provide a, a catalyst and a way for, for different seasons of life to connect more regularly. And so this is just a, a desire. And so next week, uh, we're going to have this meal and mingle at Roland Moore Park. So if you have any more information and if you're interested in being a part of this, uh, I'd ask you to, uh, connect with Shay Fitzgerald, my wife Jess Gardner, or Katie as they're kind of heading it up and, and planning those, that thing for us. 
couple other awesome announcements that we have. Uh, we have uh, we get to welcome little Callie Joy Barlow into uh, the community here today. So uh, congratulations to Chad and Audrey and the family there on the birth of their daughter. And then also we have another child, surprise, surprise, another uh, pregnancy that we want to announce, another little one on the way uh, for Roy and Mackenzie Graberger. So are Roy and Mackenzie here? Awesome. So congratulations to you guys. We'll just keep growing the church one way or another. So anyway, um, the last thing that we have this morning is uh, many of you know that uh, for quite some time we have partnered with a church network in the Czech, in the Czech Republic. And you guys have probably heard from uh, Freddie who was here a, a while back uh, last fall. And uh, today we have uh, Tomasz, I'll try to say his last name, Kadlech. He can, he can correct me on that. Is decent? Okay, I'll keep working on that. But uh, anyway, Tomas is here with us this morning, and uh, I'm going to invite him up to uh, come and just give an update, share, let uh, let you guys get to know him. We are supporting uh, Tomas uh, directly as a pastor of one of the church there in uh, Olomouc at Metro. So he wants to just introduce himself to you guys and give just an update of what's happening in the city of Olomouc. Hi. Uh, so it's Tomas Kadlets. It's close enough. Uh, it's the C, we say the C as T, whether you guys say K, K, K. so uh, you're going to see that most of the cities I'm going to name here or have the similar problem. So our uh, our church is Metro Church Olomouc. I, I've heard that in English, the Metro part uh, has a, some weird connotations. So in Czech, <laughs> all right, in Czech... It means underground or tube, that the, the, tra- the, the transportation system goes underground. And the idea is that we wanted to create the, the, the life groups that are the stops, and then they're connected by one rail. So that's, that's the part of the vision. It's just that, nothing, nothing else. Um, anyways, uh, a little bit about me. So <clears throat> uh, there's a city. Okay, I broke it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so there's a what? So I'm just not gonna use the laser pointer. So the green one uh, is called Liberets. You guys would like to say Liberec, which I've heard many times. And that's the city in the north that I'm originally uh, from. And then I moved to Olomouc, not Olomouc, uh, which is on the you know in the middle on the right part. So. Uh, Sekin is the, the original city, that's the, that's the mother church, and then there was a church plant in, in Olomouc, and I moved there from, uh, from Liberec to, to become the part of the team. For you guys, it not, not might be such a big deal, uh, from what I've heard, Americans like to move, uh, for jobs, and it's just more natural. Uh, in Czech, you just die where you were born. It's, uh, it's, it's not even a joke, like, I mean, you talk to people and they're like, hey, how about moving? But I was born here. Yeah, but there's better job. But I was born here. You just, there's just not a concept. So when we when we were saying that ten people moved uh, to there, like I had people not believe me, uh, actually. Uh, so anyway, I grew up in that church. Uh, I, I was in church since I was a kid. My mom used to take me to church. Uh, I I became a became a Christian. I became part of the youth ministry. Uh, I became a Youth pastor, maybe, but in Czech, youth, youth group is like 20 people, so pastor not, not, might be uh, too, too big of a word. 
uh, and that led me to, to seminary. Uh, I studied seminary, undergraduate degree, uh, and I didn't, at that time, I didn't feel like it would be healthy for me to become a pastor, which uh, in Czech is possible. You just go through the official system. Uh, so then I, I moved to Olomouc to actually be part of some, like, weird project that, you know, might be a great experience. Uh, and I also studied the translation. So I worked as a translator uh, and just volunteered in the church. Uh, but last year I started my internship, uh, which uh, is similar for you guys. Like we have a, like if you want to become a pastor or something, we have like two-year internship. So I'm doing that part-time, like a 50%, and then 50% uh, I still do translations. Um, and yeah, that kind of work. So in Olomouc, I, I met my wife. So that's us. Um, this is a this is a bit of a fake picture for you guys, because one of the main cultural differences between America and, and Czech is we don't smile. <laughs> so this is <laughs> that, that that's the real stuff. Uh, so we got married six years ago. Again, uh, nope. Uh, Nella, my wife's name Nella. <laughs> Thank you. So. Picture from the wedding, and here you go. That's we do two versions. Um, so anyway, uh, a, a bit more about about Metro Church. So this is us. You you can just tell we don't take pictures well as Czechs. We that's that's not our gifting. Uh, so this is us. The, this is one of the first services of Metro Church. Almost uh, it was like ten of us. Uh, this is. This picture is from one of the first retreats that that's ever happened. So again, just just a small core team. And now this is from the last year's uh, retreat. So uh, we've experienced some blessings. It's been growing. So this is what our uh, Sunday gathering looks like. Uh, we meet every every two uh, twice twice a month. It looks like this, and uh, we just. Or a small church, so we put more emphasis on the on the life groups. So we meet just twice twice a month, and then so this is one of the life groups. You can maybe some of you know Freddie. So uh, this is one life group. There's a second one. It was you can tell it's Christmas time. Uh, then we have many other like maybe you would call it ministries. So this is a we have two different moms groups. Like moms meet. It's a great outreach. There's a lot of non Christians coming. A lot of just maybe tired moms, single moms who don't really have a support at home, so it's great to, uh, they just love to, to meet, to have the community together. Um, this is our college ministry. <laughs> it gets a little crazier. So uh, Alamodes has 20, over 20,000 students. There's a huge university. So we have a college ministry. Um, this is from a, one of our meetings. It's, it's usually during the week because the students leave for for weekends, we had the special guest, so uh, this this one was a it was a bigger one. Um, we also uh, support uh, one one orphanage in Nepal. So this is Mirek, who uh, he's a businessman who's supporting that home, and uh, they're doing camps there. This is a, this is a picture from one of the camps in Nepal that they organize. And we always that the, the previous picture was from uh, Christmas, where we always raise money uh, for that home. And we have a lot of kids are, of, of our own, uh, so we just do activities with them to keep them tired, at least sometimes. 
Uh, we tried to bless them and, and pray for them. Uh, and yeah, we just tried to spend time together. Uh, we, we do worship. Uh, we help each other out <laughs> practically. So this remodel of some, some home. Uh, and we really just try to be together and, and be church. And, uh, my role in that, uh, as I said, I'm a, I'm a part-time pastor there. This is from, uh, that's, that's us being sworn in, as you would say. Uh, so this is after our first official, uh, like, we're like, uh, elected as, as elders, or you would say pastors, uh, probably here. So <laughs> that's the three of us. And I, I preach. Sometimes I use my hands more than my mouth, as you can see. Uh, we, lead, we lead worship uh, with, my, with my wife, and I think most importantly, I, I grill, I barbecue, <laughs> and uh, I do it on the big grills, I do it on the small grills, <laughs> I, <laughs> I talk about it because discipleship is really important, so you got you to gotta, gotta teach people. Uh, but on a more serious note, uh, we really put a huge emphasis on, on relationship, on, uh, on discipleship. So this is Peter. He became a Christian like a couple months ago. Uh, so this is us from the, from the Easter ceremony where uh, he was giving his testimony. He was really nervous about it. So I was like interviewing him. Uh, so he didn't get lost in that. Uh, and then there's another guy, Honza, who, who came... Uh, I became a Christian, so I'm, I meet with these two guys every week, just just leading them in preparation to be members, and it was it's just a great experience because uh, we in the college ministry we try to reach men, we try to uh, do some activities from them, and nothing really worked, and then just we, so we just prayed for it, you know, you can't go wrong there, um, and then two guys showed up, and sometimes God just shows you. You know, the thing's not in your hands. He just does what he wants. Uh, so that's Honza and Peter. We were really, um, really happy about them. And um, also, last thing, as I said, we really, if you have a small church plant, you really need new disciples, new new people who serve. So this is a band. We, we were a bit tired of, of just doing the worship, just the two of us with my wife. So in this band, uh most people have been playing that instrument for like two months. First song we ever practiced, it took one month to, to practice that song. Uh, it's been, but now after a year, we actually have a nice worship band with them. So we just really try to, to focus on people, to, to grow them up, to you know, move them into, into ministry and help them find meaning in, in the service uh, to God. So that's Metro. Um, if you have any questions, I'm, I'm going to be around. You can you can come to me and uh, just yeah just ask for more. And I wanted to thank you through this way to uh, for, for helping uh, with all this, for your support, for your prayers, for the inspiration that you have been to us. Yeah. The the grilling is actually a pretty underrated spiritual gift. So uh, it's good. good to yeah. see that, so. Let me, uh, let me just pray for you guys and uh, for everything happening over there. Father, we uh, are so excited to be able to hear this morning about what you are doing, not just in this place, but around this world and specifically in the country of the Czech Republic. Um, it's a place in which uh, that desperately needs your gospel and as you are still on a mission to have your glory fill this globe 
as the waters cover the sea. I just pray that you would continue to allow Metro Church and this small community to continue to have an impact for your gospel. Pray for Tomash and for Nella, their family, as they uh, continue to invest and to serve and to pursue the ministry that you've called them to. I pray that you would give them fruit, allow them to be effective in the declaration and spread of the gospel there in the city of Olomouc. So we uh, just ask your blessing upon them, and thank you for what you're doing uh, in the life of the, the network over there. And so we just pray that uh, your name would continue to be lifted up in this place and around this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Also, uh, we have a small team that is uh, planning actually uh, in a few short months to be able to go over to the Czech Republic and uh, be able to continue to, to build the partnership and the relationship that we have there with that church. So if there's anybody here that, would, that has an interest that, that, that piques your interest to, to get exposed more to that and to know what's going on, I would love to talk to you. So certainly uh, see me, and I'd love to talk to you about uh, what's going on over there and uh, that small team that's going to be going over there uh, the, later this fall. At this point, uh, we, we need to get into the Word, and so I would invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, so if you would, uh, please stand with me as I read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 32. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it, that, it's, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've invited us into your kingdom, and we thank you that Jesus not only reigns over us as a king, but loves us as our bridegroom. That he cares for us, that he bled for us, that he died for us. And so I want to pray in the name of Jesus that the marriages represented by the people in this room would be healed, that the hearts that struggle with anger on a continual basis will find peace, that the lust that devours our hearts would be stilled, 
by the surpassing worth of seeing Jesus Christ. So please be with us in our time right now. Settle our hearts before you. Open our hearts to your love. Open our minds to your truth. And give us, we pray, immeasurable spirit, uh, an immeasurable amount of your spirit to walk in the ways of Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Okay. I think I can start nearly every sermon I've done in 2019 with the words, who wants to trade places with me today? <laughs> so, um, okay. So last week, Brandon, great job, opened us up. His opening illustration was, uh, he talked about the different elvish languages in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which, you know, all right, bold move, Cotton. <laughs> um, but I, I want to ask you guys, a little, little survey here, how many of you know more than one language? Okay, there's a few of you. All right, uh, how many of you grew up m- multilingual? All right, a few people. You don't matter for my illustrative purposes, but congratulations. <laughs> All right, who, who here had to learn a new language once they were thoroughly familiar with the old one? All right, how hard was that? You know, some of you might know that my mom is a German native, and like any good American son, I know nothing of her mother tongue. <laughs> you know, I, that, that said, I tried. Like, I, I took four years of German in high school, uh, but, you know, my heart, my heart was never really in it. One reason was that I was never fully immersed in a German-speaking culture. I was never fully integrated into my life. And so shortly after high school, you know, once, once I was done with the classes, everything I knew about German sort of just disintegrated into thin air. I hear that if you really want to learn a new language, especially when you're so familiar with your old one, You have to go all in. You need to be integrated into a foreign context, or at the very least, you need to integrate your mind into thinking in a foreign language continually. Your heart has to be in it. It requires an incredible reorientation of your thinking. You have to reorient the way your tongue works. You have to reorient the way you read certain letters. Who would have thought that's how you say the letter C? You have to rethink of how you um, reorganize how you look at sentences and structure them. Like in German, one of the things I do remember is Germans treat verbs like dessert. Like they just put it all at the very, very end. You know? Or you have, to, you have to reorient even how words are supposed to look. I have a few examples for you up here. He kind of, my thunder was stolen a little bit earlier, but can anyone in here pronounce this besides Tomas? <laughs> all right, Tomas, help me out here. I don't see you. Yeah, okay, what is it? How do you say it? Yep, that's, <laughs> that's how you say it. What does it mean? But it's a it's bookstore. That's the word they use for the place where you buy all the other words. <laughs> like, all right, next one. It's like a committee got together and was like, yeah, I feel like it still needs a vowel. It's like, well... Just throw an E on the end. It'll be fine. What, what, wait. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> you know? All right. So, so it requires an incredible re, I'm, that's enough. Um, <laughs> it requires an incredible reorientation of your thinking. You have to reorient all of your thinking. And, and imagine now having to learn something like Chinese. Okay. Obviously, Chinese is not only a different language, but they use a different script. They have different letters, and even the design of the language will force you to look at the world slightly differently. So what does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? 
We're at the point in Jesus' teachings here where he's just really going to get into our business. Um, The teachings we're about to read are so foreign to the way that we think about how we're supposed to live that throughout the church era, people have thought of a million different ways to reinterpret it. But I don't think Jesus here is asking us to reinterpret his words. He's calling us to reorient ourselves around them. What does Matthew tell us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, is the core message of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, or in other words, reorient yourself, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Reorient yourself, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The teachings of Jesus are so unexpected, so difficult, so foreign, that the only way that we'll ever make sense of them is if we are totally reoriented. Jesus isn't calling on us to reinterpret his words. He's calling on us to reorient our hearts and to immerse ourselves in his teaching. And we'll do that today by looking at Jesus's famous, but I say to you statements regarding murder, adultery, and divorce. And so to the surprise of literally no one in here, we have three points. The heart of murder, the heart of adultery, and the heart of divorce. Now, I'm not going to be able to give a thorough treatment to any single one of these, so uh, you know we're going to, at best, be able to sketch a few things. But the expectation here is, that Jesus has for us is that we'll immerse ourselves in his word, and in this new community that he calls the kingdom of heaven, we'll begin to speak his language of love by heart. So first point, the heart of murder. Um, and I'm going to break this down into three different ways. So there's going to be a lot. There's a, that's a big theme today. A lot of threes today. So here, let me just throw it out there. If you need a bathroom break, take it. And if you're going to take notes, either take all the notes or take none of the notes. Because there's points and there's subpoints and there's subpoints to the subpoints. And it's just going to get wild. But it'll be hopefully helpful by the end. So we're going to break it down to the heart of murder, the heart of anger, and then we're going to see the heart of reconciliation. So last week, Jesus told us, whoever relaxes one of the least of God's commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. For I tell you, says Jesus, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he starts with one of the commandments that I think we can all generally agree upon. He quotes the sixth of the Ten Commandments, and he says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I can imagine the scribes and the Pharisees there, and even probably some of the sick or even the drunkards following Jesus, you know, they all generally agree upon this. Ah, yes, not murdering. One of my favorites. You know, it's a good one. Um, So Jesus has total buy-in with his audience at this point. But I've heard a lot of skeptics argue over the years, like, do you actually, do you Christians actually need a commandment of God to tell you not to murder? You know, like Christianity is nothing special here. Every culture believes that murder is wrong. It's just the psychopaths among us who would disagree. And yeah, you know, fair enough. <clears throat> you don't need to be a Christian to say that murder is evil. But if you watch like a minute of the evening news, you'll see that it still happens every single day. And so if we all agree that murder is bad, and and there are still people who do it, that raises the question for us. Why do people murder? What's at the heart of murder? 
I mean, honestly, how do people justify taking someone else's life? And the only way I can imagine is if you basically get to the point where you think that another person's life is absolutely worthless, that this person is complete trash, and that the best thing that can happen for you is if you remove this other person from your little world. So the question comes back to the skeptic now, so what's so wrong about murder? They might say, well, you know, in order for societies to function, we need to have laws and regulations and rules and blah, 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 blah. But think about that. Like, take, take the naturalistic perspective, follow it all the way through. There is no God, just this material universe. The, the universe is just molecules banging into each other, causing actions and reactions, an endless chain of cause and effect. So what's wrong with the squishy molecules in my finger pulling the metallic molecules of the trigger, which explodes the gunpowder molecules in the chamber, which propels the lead molecules of the bullet to penetrate the squishy molecules of your chest cavity, causing all the molecules of your body to spill back out onto the earth from where all those molecules came from in the first place? It's just molecules in motion, isn't it? Cause and effect. So what's wrong with murder? As with most of Jesus' teaching, it goes back to page one of our Bibles. It's wrong because when God created humans, he created them in his image. And therefore, every person you've ever seen is someone with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Every single person, from radical Muslims to revolutionary socialists to staunch Bible-thumping red state Christians, they're all made in the image of God. And so when you take another person's life, you're saying that the, the image of God in that person is utterly worthless, that you can defile it, you can destroy it, and you can remove it from your world. But we all agree that murder is wrong, right? Like, we'd never politicize an entire class of human beings and tell a whole generation of people that the little baby growing in a womb is just an insignificant, valueless being. We'd never tell a whole generation of people that their world would be better if they didn't have that human in their life. Would we? I mean, we all agree that murder is wrong. And, you know, I'm not saying this to just score political points here. Like, I think in our context, this is a generally agreeable thing to say. Maybe not for everyone in here. But let me just, like, in our sidewalk counseling efforts outside of the abortion clinics in Fort Collins, like, I've held a baby in my hands who was almost aborted one day. Like, that's amazing. That's, that's a life-changing sort of situation. And so if you're in here and you're someone who has had an abortion or if this is just a, an issue for you that is so divisive and frustrating, first off, like, the Christian community is far more loving and gracious and kind and caring than you would anticipate given the, the sort of way the temperature has been turned up in our culture. And there's grace and mercy and healing in the life of the church and in the life of Jesus. And so if you need to talk with another woman in here about that, there are people in here who have had abortions, who've been forgiven, who've experienced healing, who've experienced love in Christ. And they'd be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, so that wasn't in my manuscript, and this is already going to be long, so I'll just leave it there. So we all agree here that murder is wrong, right? Or at least the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus' audience do. So what makes Jesus' teachings unique? What is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? 
Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Murder is the fruit, but anger is the seed. And to be sure, the seed doesn't always grow into murder, right? The seed of anger can grow in a million different ways, but they all end in destruction. They all end in some type of death. It can be the death of friendships, the death of communities, the death of families, the death of workplaces. If the fruit is evil, so is the seed. You don't harvest peaches from briar patches. You see, if you utterly devalue someone and the end result of that thinking is murder, but it starts with the anger in the heart that says, I hate this person, I despise this person, I can't stand this person, this person is worthless. What Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom of God, there is no room for a heart that devalues people that are made in the image of God. So he tells us that if we're angry with our brother, we've already devalued them in our hearts, and that's worthy of judgment. Some of your translations might say next that whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you good for nothing, will be liable to the council or to the Sanhedrin. So this is a judgment against someone else's competence. The Greek word literally would translate to something like, you empty head. Whoever insults his brother by calling him, you empty head. So here's what I want you to do for a second. Imagine the most incompetent person in your life. You got a face in mind? Okay, good. That person just did something really stupid that's going to make your life a lot more complicated. What do you want to call them? That's what Jesus is getting at. And Jesus is saying is that's worthy of going before the council. He goes on to say, whoever says you fool will be guilty of the fire of hell. Now, this isn't a judgment against someone's intelligence. This is a judgment against someone's moral character. Just think about how the word fool is used through the book of Proverbs. It's not talking about someone's intelligence. It's talking about morally compromised people. So, for example here, imagine that you're driving down to Denver traveling 75, which is a less and less frequent occurrence these days. There's about a car and a half gap between you and the car in front of you when the person to the side all of a sudden just just decides, like, "Eh, this is as good a time as any to change lanes. Time to squeeze in, no apparent reason at all. And also, I don't really use blinkers. How do you feel about that person? What do you want to call them? How does their moral negligence about how, about how they endanger everyone else on the road make you feel? What do you want to say to them? In other words, this is the type of person that when they get what's coming to them, you rejoice in that. Like, ha ha, pulled over by the cops. Or, ha-ha, you got passed over for the promotion. Now, it's not like Jesus is saying that any of these actions is somehow worse than the others. He's just working with threes because that's what good preachers do. Okay? <laughs> the point here is that, Je- that Jesus is getting at is the serious nature of our anger. Jesus uses an image like the fires of hell because that's what anger does. It burns and destroys. It destroys communities, disintegrates families, divides churches, dissolves businesses, destroys harmony between individuals. It's a type of murder that puts an end to human flourishing. Anger allows you to arrogantly put yourself in the right and other people in the wrong. 
It allows you to look down on people, to dehumanize them in your mind, to despise people made in the image of God. And if you hold on to it, eventually the image of God will disintegrate in you. Imagine someone left to their anger for an eternity. Wouldn't that be hell? And so if anger is so destructive, if it creates hell here on earth and thus deserves the fiery judgment of God, then we should ask Jesus, how can we avoid it? But before I ask Jesus how we can avoid it, I actually turned to the New York Times because I was curious, like, what do they, what do they have to say? I see, you don't have to shake your head. It's not that bad. So I turned to the New York Times. I'm like, type in anger management, New York Times. Here's what I came up with. It says, uh, it, well, it basically tells you what you'd expect. It says, you know, practice mindfulness, which honestly I have no idea what that means. Um, maybe role play some situations with your therapist and understand what your triggers are. Turns out the word triggers is one of my triggers. So, oh well. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm not poo-pooing any of that stuff. Like it's all, it's reasonable enough. But what does Jesus tell us to do with our anger? He says in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Oh, wait, hold on. Let's read that again. If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus' solution to anger is to take the path of reconciliation. So Jesus shows us how to overcome anger by drawing a picture of someone who seeks reconciliation in, you guessed it, three ways. First, we notice that a person who overcomes anger is a person who actively seeks reconciliation. Jesus' followers are not dwelling on the ways that they've been wronged. Rather, they're searching their hearts for the ways that they've wronged others. And when you realize that you've wronged someone, you're the one who takes initiative to go and seek reconciliation. Second, a person who overcomes anger seeks reconciliation even when it's inconvenient. So you're a first century Drew, you, Jew, Drew, you could be a Drew, Jew named Drew, I guess. Um, so you're a first century Jew and you've made your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You've gone through all the ceremonial cleansing you hand over your spotless animal to the priest, and then suddenly you remember some thoughtless thing you did to someone back at home. What does God want you to do? You tie up your sheep, or you let it go play with the other sheep in the sheep park, and you go home, and you make things right. Then third, a person who overcomes anger will go to any lengths to seek forgiveness from others. The last picture Jesus sketches here in verses 25 and 26 is someone settling accounts with their accuser on their way to court. We've all had someone in our lives who we have wronged at one point, and it just utterly wrecked the relationship. Like it could be a sibling that you don't talk to anymore. It could be an ex-boyfriend. It could be an old friend, an estranged spouse. I mean, we can all imagine the feeling of knowing that the person will never release us from the grudge that they hold against us. We know what it's like to have someone emotionally imprison us like that until we've paid the last penny. And so by way of implication, Jesus is telling us first and foremost, do not be the type of person that emotionally imprisons other people like this. 
But secondly, and really what he's getting at here, is he's telling us to try and heal that sort of broken relationship as soon as possible. Even if it means you have to humble yourself, ask for forgiveness, and do what you can to make things right. And so, here's the thing. If anger is the process of disintegration, then reconciliation is the process of reintegration. So for you, what does this mean? At a bare minimum, if someone came to your mind in these last couple minutes and you realize that they have a legitimate grievance with you, even if they own 90% of the blame and you only own 10% of the blame, but it's a legitimate 10%, I would say pull out your phone right now, get in touch with that person. Or even, like, leave, honestly. Like, leave your gift there before the altar. Get out of there. Go make things right. Okay, you guys all have perfect relationships. Good to hear. <laughs> I mean, is it awkward? Yes. I mean, imagine the priest in Jesus' illustration, like, hey, what am I supposed to do with your sheep? Doesn't matter. Does not matter. There are things in this world that are more important than our religious rituals. So also, I'd encourage you, when you give to the crossing, if you're going to give to the summer fund, if you're going to do your regular giving, make it a legitimately worshipful experience by taking a moment to examine and see if you can think of someone that you have wronged and need to be reconciled to. Write it in the memo of your check and hold on to that check until you've reached out to that person. Even if that means that we don't get any money here for a month, for a month, we'd be fine with that if it meant all of y'all got your relationships in right order. We would be more happy with that than with a million dollars. And I'm not paid here, but I think I can speak for, the, speak for the paid staff. So, hopefully. Okay, how's everyone doing? That's, that's one of three. So, okay. So, next of Jesus' teachings. Lust and adultery. This should be easy. <laughs> At least none of you will fall asleep. Okay. Verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is the heart of adultery? Well, to get there, we need to look at the heart of sex, the horror of adultery, and the heart of desire. And yes, I know. Like, it's three cr- sermons crammed into one. Like, I, I was telling the guys this morning, I'm like, I'm actually going to look at this, not as one really long sermon, but as three of the shortest sermons I've ever preached. So, okay. So, the heart of sex. Is the Bible squeamish at all about sex? Let me take you back to page two of your Bibles. A naked man is singing rapturous love songs to a naked woman in the presence of God. And that's the beginning of your Bible, okay? Like, non-Christians often assume that the Bible is just horrendously negative when it comes to sex. But Jesus teaches us that not only is the biblical vision of sex less suffocating and less restraining than you think, but it's ultimately one of the most liberating and most appealing aspects of Christianity. What do I mean by that? Uh, I'm going to borrow quite heavily from Tim Keller here, but he describes two basic approaches to sex, a consumer approach and a covenantal approach. And so, again, at best, I'm sketching stick figures, but you're all intelligent people, so you'll be able to fill in what you need to, I, I trust. Okay, a consumer approach basically approaches sex as a mere appetite. Like, I have a hunger, and it needs to be satisfied. And so sex, to some degree, just becomes a means of self-fulfillment. 
But you can even zoom out from sex a little bit and just think about how this applies more generally to modern dating culture. Like, I'm a human, I have my needs, and as long as this other person continues to fulfill my needs and keep me happy, I'll keep them around, right? Like, is this a massive oversimplification? You're all allowed to nod yes. Like, yes, it is. It's, but, but you all get the point. On the other hand, you can approach sex biblically, which is to say that you can approach it covenantally. We talk covenants here a lot, and that's because they're absolutely unique relationships. They're unlike consumer relationships because you're not in it merely for your own needs. And they're not like a contract or a business relationship where, you know, you'll keep up your end of the bargain as long as the other person keeps up theirs. When you enter into a covenant like marriage, you and your spouse both agree to place the health of the relationship above everything else. More than self-fulfillment, more than working on a mutual project, it is an absolutely unique relationship. And it's the type of relationship that the Bible describes in just shockingly beautiful terms. It, It is two individual people, diverse in their backgrounds, diverse in their gender, diverse in a multitude of ways, becoming one. As Genesis 2 describes it, becoming one flesh. It's God creating unity through diversity. And so in marriage, sex isn't merely about satisfying an appetite or having your individual needs met or giving vent to your desires. It becomes a profound context where you can give yourself for the good of another. It can, be, it can become profoundly life-giving in that not only does it give life to your spouse and joy, but just think about the design of sex itself. Through this particular expression of love, new communities, new families are made. In marriage, the oneness of sex becomes a sacrament of your marriage. Now, what do I mean by that? Like the sacraments of of baptism or the Lord's Supper, these are external experiences that communicate an internal and spiritual reality. These symbols illustrate the way that Jesus has changed our hearts, how he's come into our lives, and how he's given us new life in his name. So similarly, when it comes to sex and marriage, you are physically reenacting the wholesale, internal, and even spiritual oneness that you have with your spouse. You have a oneness of heart with your spouse, and that's the heart of sex. And that's what makes adultery such a horror. Now, Jesus is speaking directly to the married men in his audience, and probably the scribes and Pharisees in particular, but let me just ask you guys an obvious question. Are men the only ones who can commit adultery? No, right? Or are men's the only, are men's men the only ones who can lust? Obviously not. So Jesus is just really dense with his words here, and so he invites us all to listen to what he says, to chew on it, to immerse ourselves in it, and to see how it can apply in a million different ways, because he's a master at this. It took him 30 seconds to tell you what I've already been working on for like 20 minutes. Like, he's incredible. Okay, so I want you to think about the horror of adultery in two ways. All right, curveball, two. First, Jesus here is addressing far more than the strict issue of adultery as we usually think about it. He's talking about sex outside of a covenant. What does sex inside a covenant communicate? We just went over this. Sex says, I have found profound unity and complete oneness with this other person. Now, what does sex outside of a covenant communicate? It says, I want to be one with you sexually, 
but not in any of these other ways. Like, I don't want to be one with you financially. I don't want to necessarily be one with you exclusively. And I certainly don't want to be one with you indefinitely. It's just utterly consumeristic. And at its root, it treats other people as a means of building our own little kingdoms. You know, this type of thinking treats, you know, if you carry it out into all these other relationships in your life, it just means that you treat all these relationships as a means of self-gratification and self-interest. Essentially, it's humans trying to build their own little kingdoms where their desires reign supreme. Like anger, adultery has an incredible way of destroying community for the sake of your own petty little kingdom. And Jesus, the true king of the universe, calls that high treason. He will not stand for usurpers. When it comes to adultery from someone who is in a marriage covenant, do I even, this is the second part, do I even need to go into how ugly and terrible that is? Do I need to spell out for you the ways in which adultery destroys, disrupts, and dissolves community? How it ruins families, how it can destroy the life of an aggrieved spouse or the children, or in some cases, even an entire church community. And Jesus looks at this and says simply, this disintegration, this disunity of sex from a covenant will not stand in my kingdom. But if, again, as I've argued, the biblical vision of sex and marriage is so beautiful, why do so many people violate it? And this gets us to the heart of desire. Obviously, Jesus here is not relaxing the seventh commandment one iota. As with murder, Jesus takes the commandment forbidding adultery, and he doubles down on it. He boils it down to the heart. Adultery comes down to a matter of the heart. The word we have translated here as, as lust has a wide scope within the New Testament. It's the word epithemia. Simply put, it's an overwhelming, unquenchable desire. And in the New Testament, it can be associated with greed and money. It can be associated with self-seeking. But ultimately, it's associated with idolatry, with the worship of false gods. And so this type of desire says, I need to have this thing in my life in order to have a fulfilling and satisfying life, which is something only God can do. However, you know, we live in a culture now that constantly tells us that if we want a truly fulfilled and satisfying life, it comes through sexual and romantic pursuits. Again, culturally speaking, we're told that denying our sexual desires is to deny ourselves a meaningful existence. We treat romance and sex as if it's the great savior of the world. We advertise with it. We watch movies about it. We sing songs to it. We hope for it. We long for it. We lust for it. So, what is sex and romance? Is it a great savior or is it a mere hunger? The sexual, the sexual revolution taught us that if we pursue sex and romance outside of the context of marriage, then we'll finally be liberated and free. And on top of that, our hungers will be satisfied. Has it delivered on its promise? Or has it created an, an environment that allows people to simply pursue their own gratification at the expense of other people's well-being? I'll let the Me Too movement answer that one for me. When you view sex and romance as a consumer good as something you pursue for your own personal agenda. It creates fractures, fractures rather in community because it has to. It absolutely has to. That sort of self-seeking will destroy relationships. 
Your sexual partner will never, will never fully satisfy your longings, nor will he ever give you ultimate purpose and fulfillment. And so to expect your sexual partner to do these things, even in the context of marriage, will destroy your relationship. But hopefully you can see how these destructive desires don't even need to necessarily be sexual. I mean, you can lust after the idea of just having a better relationship than the one that you're in right now. You can lust after someone else's attention and approval. You can lust for a partner who provides for you better financially. You can lust after the idea of a perfect family. You can lust after all these things in such a way that it becomes poisonous and destroys your marriage or destroys your family because these desires point us to false saviors who cannot save. Therefore, those desires that burn within us, if unleashed outside of their proper context, to stick with Jesus' words here, can cause a hell of a lot of damage. Verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, question for you all. If desire is a fire, is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, yeah, yes, that's the right answer. It, maybe more accurately, it depends, okay? So it's June in Colorado, so obviously my furnace has been running the last couple days. <laughs> and so in the, in the context of my furnace, this controlled flame can be used to heat my entire house. It causes warmth, it brings comfort, it creates an environment for human flourishing. Now suppose, though, I were an idiot, for some of you, you don't have to suppose much. And I decided that I wanted to save a little money on my heating bill, so I just throw a big pile of wood in the middle of my living room and light it on fire. My utilities would presumably be very cheap at the end of the month, but I also wouldn't have a house anymore. Jesus is showing us that the destructive nature of our unrestrained desires, he's showing us what that can do. When we hold, uh, when we hold those desires outside of their proper context, the result is destruction. Our self-centered desires, even when it comes to something like sex, can destroy communities, families, marriages, and so on. Um, I was going to read James 4, but I'll give you guys, like, just read James 4 today at some point. See what, see what desire, unrestrained desire can do to a community. Okay, so I have, uh, to, to kind of round out this last portion of adultery and lust, um, I have one application and one implication, Okay. So the application here, Um, we've been talking about this consumeristic approach to sex and pleasure, and so I just want to make one point. Pornography. I mean, is there anything more consumeristic and self-centered than pornography? You don't even need to have another person in the room. Like, you can get it how you want, you can get it when you want, and now because of these things, you can get it anywhere you want. And it's just wild. I mean, I, I don't know what the stats are, but I, I heard something about how it's like, it's a more, there's more money in pornography than there is in like the NFL, which is insane. It, it's wild. The psychologists today are only now starting to understand the ways that, heart, that pornography literally like rewires your brain. Or not figuratively rewires your brain, but, but it, it has physical changes on your physical brain. Like that's insane. 
I came across research this week that indicates that young men who use pornography become far less tolerant of the stresses and hardships that come with real relationships. Because why put up with someone else's baggage when you can just hop online and find immediate gratification? Additionally, these researchers argued that porn culture has so infiltrated pop culture that it basically influences everybody's lives, even if you don't use porn. It influences fashion, it influences standards of beauty, and perhaps most destructive of it all, it promotes a hyper-unrealistic expectation of how your partner should perform and look sexually. This stuff destroys communities. It promotes breakdown. It torches relationships. It invites hell into our world. And Jesus says, seriously, get rid of it. Now, is he actually promoting self-mutilation here? Because if I pluck out one eye, I still have another one. And if I cut off one hand, I still have another one. And remember here, Jesus is talking directly to the men. And I can think of one body part that he didn't mention that there wouldn't be a second one of. You guys figured it out. Good job. (laughs) Jesus is using hyperbole. He's telling you that this sort of self-serving mindset when it comes to sex is so destructive and so poisonous that you need to take extreme measures to get rid of it. So do you struggle with porn? Find someone here you can trust and work with them to get it out of your life. Get rid of your phone if you have to. Buy a dumb phone. Move your laptop to the kitchen. Do whatever you got to do to cut this stuff out of your life. And now briefly, one implication. You know, I mentioned here how Jesus is addressing the men directly. There's a, the word he uses here, to look at a woman with lust. Um, I would assume there are some women in here that know exactly what that look is. And it's horribly demeaning. So does the kingdom of Jesus sound like the sort of place that women should feel safe? I would hope so. Okay. So I've been most hesitant about getting to our third point here, the heart of divorce. Hopefully you guys can already see how I've been stacking the deck so that a lot of place can just sort of fall, a lot of things can just fall into place at this point. Um, Some of the commentators here point out that these three, but I say to you, statements that we've read today, uh, they form one unit, and the next three, they're like a a distinct but similarly related unit. And so I think we all can see it, though, right? Like, you can see the ways that anger and lust have an impact on an issue like divorce, right? Because if not, I don't know how to help you. Like... (laughs) So obviously, like, I can't give anything close to a full treatment on the topic of divorce. So if you have questions after this, seriously, come talk to me. I'm going to have the life group leaders at the end of our time here stand up. Um, You can reach out to them as well. Um, Any of the pastors, any of the life group leaders, come talk to us. Uh, These things need to be processed in the context of community. I think that's, that's, if you get nothing else out of this, get that. Like, this, these sort of issues need to be processed in the context of community. Okay, don't, don't figure it out for yourself, because you won't. Okay, so uh, not a full treatment here, but again, three relatively brief points. The heart of marriage, the disintegration of divorce, and the better spouse. Okay, so Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. So we've already talked at length about the biblical vision of the oneness of marriage. But there's something that goes back even before page two, before page one of your Bibles. Something that goes back all the way into God's eternal purposes for humanity. And it has something to tell us about marriage. So question here. A little Bible trivia. What's one of the most commonly used metaphors in the New Testament when describing the eternal kingdom of God? Anybody? Marriage. A wedding supper, you know? Thank you. Thanks for bailing me out on that one. (laughs) Okay, over and over again throughout the New Testament, whether it's Jesus' parables, the teachings of Paul, the book of Revelation, we keep being told that our eternal destiny as believers in Christ is something like a wedding feast. It's the sort of thing where there will be rejoicing and feasting and singing and laughing. It's an environment describing eternal, unending, infinite joy. And... The closest thing, hear this, the closest thing on earth that even begins to compare to the glories of heaven is the oneness we experience in marriage. Just think about that. That's, That's what God is telling us through marriage. Through the blood of Jesus, God has made his marriage proposal to us. And in spite of our unfaithfulness to him, in spite of the fact that we've been spiritual adulterers, at the heart of marriage, is the story of a God who forgives us and welcomes us back into his love. So God's work of redemption is to bring humanity back into the harmony and love relationship of the one true God. And consider this, like, in the being of God himself, in the oneness of God, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In that oneness, there is a love relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, the Spirit. All of them united together in a relationship of love. And I can't even begin to pretend to understand what that actually means. But I think for, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have followed Jesus, like we, we know it because we've tasted it. God gave us marriage to tell us a story about himself. He gave us marriage as the thing that will most closely approximate the joy of heaven. And now some of you might be thinking to yourselves, not my marriage. And that gets us to the dis- disintegration of divorce. You know, we're, we're talking heart issues today. And I'm scared to know if there are any marriages in here that at their heart are functional divorces. In my preparations over the last couple of weeks, I kept asking myself, you know, what, what unites these things together? What unites the themes of anger, lust, and divorce? And it's hell. Hell is the uniting theme. The word Jesus uses for hell here is Gehenna. It was a real place outside of the gates of Jerusalem. It was the place where Israel committed flagrant spiritual adultery against Yahweh. In the absolute folly of Israel's former pagan worship ceremonies, they'd sacrificed their own children with fire to the pagan god Moloch. Gehenna came to represent the other folly of idolatry. It came to represent the eternal destiny of someone who disregards the kingdom of God in order to pursue the kingdom of self. It represents the chaos that idolatry releases in a person's life. 
It represents the unquenchable fire that burns through the human soul like a match set to gasoline and dry timber. And so the unquenchable fire of our anger becomes the fire that consumes us in eternity. The anger of our hearts turns into the fire that consumes us in eternity. The unquenchable longing of lust is a snapshot of what it means to long eternally outside of the presence of God, away from all flourishing, away from joy, away from peace. Anger and lust, hell and fire. And then divorce. For those of you who've experienced divorce, whether as a child of divorced parents or as someone who's been divorced from a former spouse, I do not need to tell you what hell that is. If the kingdom of heaven is about the unity and integration of all things in Christ, if it is about God becoming one with his people in a wedding ceremony, then hell is destruction and disintegration. As C.S. Lewis titled his book about hell, Hell is the great divorce. And so divorce is horrific because it is antithetical to the purposes of God. God's plan is to reunite heaven and earth in the wedding ceremony of his son, King Jesus. To pursue divorce is to fall short of the glory of marriage. It tells the whole planet a lie about the character of God. Your marriage is designed to be the display of the glory, love, grace, and forgiveness of God. And so when it comes to application to this part of our text, what else can I say aside from what I've already said about anger and lust? Husbands, be quick to reconcile with your wives when you've wronged her, even if you're responsible for only 10%, which let's be honest, you're never responsible for only 10%. Come to terms quickly with her. Regarding your own anger, Put it to death. As Peter tells us in his letter to the churches in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. In other words, don't yell at her. Don't intimidate her. Don't you dare lay a hand on her. Don't try to force her to understand you. You live with her in an understanding way. Live with her in an understanding way since they are heirs with you, he continues, of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, put away your lust. Buy a dumb phone if you have to. Honor your wife's beauty. Care for her. She can flourish like a garden if you let her. Wives, respect your husband's. Do not hold on to the memories of how your husbands have wronged you. Forgive him. Release him from the emotional prison that you've put him in. Do not force him to pay to the last penny. Stop lusting after the man that your husband is not and enter in and help him, help him become the man that he needs to be. If someone in here has committed adultery, seek forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. Young men, kill your lust. Delete Tinder. Stop looking at women like they're pieces of meat that you can consume. They bear the image of God. Respect them. 
Young men, or sorry, rather, young women, pray for these young men. Because I know for some of them, this battle with lust is the most devastating failure that they confront on a pretty regular basis in their lives. Husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. Let's look to the better spouse. And with this, we'll close. Jesus here is entering into a debate in his day. There were basically two schools of thought regarding Moses' teaching on divorce from Deuteronomy 24. You can look it up later. It's literally the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. And it essentially says that in these words, if a man finds any indecency in his wife, he can divorce her. Some rabbis taught that this means that if she's unfaithful to him, and only in that context can a man divorce his wife. Other rabbis said that if she burns his dinner, that's grounds for divorce. And, you know, the human heart being what it is. I mean, this isn't in the manuscript, so I'm just going to go on to this. Remember Jesus' teachings elsewhere in Matthew chapter 19. They ask him, like, why did Moses permit a, a divorce? Jesus tells them, because of your hardness of heart. It was not so from the beginning. For from the beginning, God said, let the two become one. And what God has brought together, let not man tear apart. Okay, so that's, that's where Jesus stands. Okay, and by the time Jesus is on planet Earth, Lo and behold, the people took the most lenient understanding when it comes to divorce by and large. So marriage and divorce, like the whole institution was in shambles in Jesus' day, not at all unlike the way marriage is in shambles today in our own culture. So we see here that people call this the exception clause when it comes to divorce. If someone is physically unfaithful to their covenantal oneness with their spouse, then Jesus allows that person to divorce. And I understand there's a lot of you for whom this will raise a lot of questions. And again, talk to me, talk to the other pastors, talk to other people in this community, because I can't get into it. Like, you guys have already been so, so patient with me. Okay, so we'll just set, set some of those questions aside for now. Ask me about it later. Notice this, though. Jesus gives us an exception, not a command. It's an exception, not a command. So let me ask you guys, how many of you are feeling pretty burned by Jesus' words right now? You don't have to raise a hand, but I would assume if you have a heart that works, you're feeling it. You should. (laughs) Jesus designed it that way. You should feel the sting in your soul when you read about Jesus' teaching on anger and lust and divorce. I mean, there's not a person in here. There's not a person in this room, yours truly included, that has not violated at least one of these teachings in the last week, probably in the last day, potentially even since you've been here. Okay? But here's the key. Jesus has every right to divorce each and every single one of us. He has the right to divorce this entire world. We've all committed spiritual adultery against him. We've all violated his trust and his mercy with our own selfish pursuits. But what does Jesus do? Even though we hear the one, um, even though we were the ones, rather, we were the ones who sinned against Jesus, he left his heavenly dwelling to be reconciled to us. He left and did the inconvenient thing. Even though he has every right to be angry with us, He dies on a cross for our sins. We have lusted. We have epithemeoed after a million different things. And Jesus is standing there perplexed that we turn our our backs on him over such trifles. 
Jesus sits with his disciples. Jesus sits with his disciples the night before his crucifixion in Luke 22, verse 15. And he says, I've epithemeoed. I have longed to eat this Passover meal with you. I've desired to lay my life down for you, to make you complete. I've longed to bring you back into the presence of the Father. I've yearned to make the church my bride. You know, the prophet Hosea was told to go out and marry a prostitute. So he did. They started a family together. And then she left him for other men. So God tells Hosea, go out there and love her again. Because this is what it's like for God to love us. Jesus pursues his unfaithful bride over and over and over again in order to make her clean, to assure her of his love, and to make himself one with her. Hosea 2.14 And I will make for them a covenant in that day. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on those who had no mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, almost hear him say, and they shall finally say, you are my God. We've all angered wrongly, lusted wrongly, divorced wrongly. And Jesus looks at this mess and says, I want to make those people whole. I want to give them my life. I want to lay my life down for them so that they can flourish in the kingdom of heaven. And until you receive Jesus as your better spouse, you'll never be the spouse you're supposed to be, let alone the friend you're supposed to be, or the coworker, or the brother, or the sister, or the son or daughter. Give your allegiance to Jesus first. Trust in him. Hope in him. Long for him. And then flourish in his kingdom community. And I have a little addendum that I kind of put on the end here. Um, I want to close. I know I said I was going to close earlier, but um, I lied. Please forgive me. I actually want to close with an observation. I spoke with four of my coworkers on Friday, and not one of them knew what the Sermon on the Mount was. Not one. I was like, if you're an American, you know at least Easter, Christmas, and the Sermon on the Mount, right? Not so much. Like, I was, I was shocked by this. And some of you know I work in a, a scientific field, which means three things. <laughs> this must be a good joke. I was, I was hoping for more laughs. <laughs> there, there are three really brief things, okay? So the first thing that that means is that I have a biased sample, sample population, okay? The second thing it means is that I actually think about life a lot in terms of biased sample populations. So go figure. And then third, it is highly, highly unlikely that they'll be coming to any church in the near future to hear about the teachings of Jesus. Now, to be sure, I will send them this podcast when the sermon audio is uploaded. So, coworkers from the future, if you're listening to this, thank you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Hopefully you've been listening to it at one and a half times speed. You're awesome. <laughs> if they do listen... I'll be curious to see if they find the message as beautiful as I do. Even if it sounds like a strange foreign language, I wonder if they can see its beauty. I mean, I think we all know there are some languages out there that just, 
sound beautiful, even if you don't know what they're saying. I wouldn't say it works for Czech, sorry, Tomasz. I wouldn't say it works for German, sorry, mom. But French, maybe, I think. I think we can all generally agree French is a pretty beautiful sounding language, even if we can't fully understand it. So for us Christians, the call today is to integrate the truths of the good news about Jesus and the reality of his kingdom into our lives in such a way that people will see it. They'll taste and see that God is good. They'll taste us and say, that is a really nice, salty flavor. They'll see the goodness of God as though we were a lamp lighting up a room. And they'll give glory to our Father who is in heaven. But if we don't commit ourselves to the ways of Jesus, if we don't commit ourselves to immersing one another in his word, how will they ever know the beauty, the love, the grace, and the forgiveness of Christ? And I guess the, the thing I should close with is, do you? Do you know these things? Have you taken them in? Have you become one with Christ? Because if it's your foundation, your house will stand. It will not disintegrate. It will not crumble. It will not fall. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, as usual, I'm grateful that you have given me a congregation of people who are incredibly patient. I thank you for your word, though it cuts like a knife at times. It is so good. Like a surgeon's knife, it creates healing, it creates peace, it creates warmth and joy and love. And so I pray that by your spirit today, you apply your word to our, to our wayward hearts. Hear this, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.